So the Food Alliance Lunchtime Seminar, The Ethnic Penalty in the Labour Market, Potential Causes and Policy Options, by Dr. Reza Hasmet from the University of Melbourne, 1st of March, 2012. Sure, um, well, thank you, Paul, for that introduction, and uh, I want to thank the Brotherhood for uh, putting on the Lunchtime Seminar Series. I figure as in the first one, I shall least give that thanks um, for them for organizing it, and as well to Christine Phil for organizing the, uh, the series as well. Um, so for this particular talk, we're just going to look at it in three parts. Um, in fact, it actually reflects three di different disciplinary focuses, in fact. So the first part, uh, we're going to look at prevalences, whether or not an ethnic penalty actually exists. And it's actually taking it more from an economics perspective, more sociological as well, perhaps. Um, then we're going to be looking at causes. And that's looking at using qualitative interviews um, in the context of China, in the context of Canada, um, to understand why do penalties potentially exist. Um, so we're really explaining those penalties. And the third part of the talk, we're going to be looking at potential policy options. And that's looking at more from, you'd be surprised, from a management school, and also from the School of Public Policy sort of um, thoughts there. Um, and all three, as I would suggest, as, as the talk goes on, and you will see, actually link up very well. Um, so without further ado, why don't I just introduce the, the prevalences and study in general. Um, so basically, um, a lot of the work was looking at Toronto's uh, experiences with ethnic minorities. And we're looking at visible ethnic minorities in particular. What's interesting about Toronto is that 40% of Toronto is actually visible ethnic minorities. So you have a population of about, what, 4.5, 4.6 million. 40% of that population are visible ethnic minorities. Now, what you also may also need to know as well is that visible ethnic minority is an interesting sort of category because it actually is suggesting that there's uh, not only are there ethnic minorities, but they're actually visible in terms of accent, in terms of physical sort of parents and so forth. So it doesn't actually capture some other minorities, ethnic minorities, who, um, who would also be part of that population as well. But what Toronto attempts to do when it comes to managing ethnic differences is that it attempts to use a variety of social policies in partnership with the federal and provincial and various levels of government to, um, to actually ha have financial support for no cultural festivals, for, for marketing um, ethnic-based investments, to lure investments in. Um, so, for instance, uh, we have a very strong Italian community, and, and, and in that community you find that there's a lot of ethnic businesses which the city is hoping to promote, in fact, what you find is a lot of pasta being shipped back to Italy from Toronto. So that's one an example of this ethnic business there. Um, so the strategy there is to actually use the ethnic capital in the city um, to, to foster growth, economic growth. Now, similarly, in, in, in Beijing, um, we find that ethnic minority management is, is, is operated by a combination of central government decrees, social policy protections, um, and attempts to, to, to promote ethnic minority integration by, by having festivals, by, having, by promoting ethnic foods and sport and dance in the mainstream. Um, what was, I mean, when I started this project, it was about eight years ago, when I was looking at China and Canada and comparing it. Um, what was interesting is that at the policy level, if you look at the policies for both, um, they're very similar, very, very similar in verbatim. Um, and that, so it, it suggests that there was an intent to, to, to manage differences, ethnic differences, within a, a very uh, similar sort of standpoint. What you do find, however, is that what made the Toronto and, and Beijing case very interesting is that Toronto has always been seen as a model of ethnic minority management, whereas Beijing has always had a very strained ethnic relations. 
um, which is which continues historically, which has been historically um, the case and continues today as well. Now, let me just show you very briefly um, the ethnic composition. So there's two ways, and you might find it echoes of the Australian case as well. There's two ways of migration, major ways of migration after World War II. Uh, the first wave would be from 1946 to 1970, and then the second wave from the 1970s to, to the end of, uh, I guess, by the end of the 1990s. What you start seeing is that Toronto's population is actually increasing significantly here, and the visible population, in fact, is, is increasing significantly. And so, as a consequence, you find that the city is actually um, the city is actually attempted to uh, um, to manage this by by ensuring their social policy protections. And there's three waves. Um, of these sort of policy protections. It's trying to sensitize the, the dominant population, so we call them the European group, so to speak, that there are different populations within the city, and we get to get, it's more of an exchange of ideas, get to know different cultures. And so what we found was, um, by the 70s to early 80s, that was the sort of uh, social policies were geared towards that. Let's get to know different ethnic groups. And so you find that there's festivals, you find that there's things such as uh, Caravana for the, for the Caribbean groups, or um, you might find there's a taste of the dance for the Greek groups. So you're getting to learn more, essentially, about the groups. By the 80s to early 90s, um, it was not enough alone to actually get to know about the groups. You want to now know, um, the groups are saying, well, we're at a disadvantage. Whether that's perceived or real, it's another story, but they, they argued that in, in the labor market that they're at a disadvantage. And so they said, we need to have affirmative action programs and so forth. So we saw that social policies were geared towards that. Um, by, the late, by the 90s and, and, and in this decade, um, there's a critique of whether or not we need affirmative action policies. And so that's the sort of conversations that's going on there. But what you do find is that these sort of policy shifts are actually occurring because of the demographic shifts. Now, we can also see, just for, for background, that the ethnic minority population in Beijing is about 5%, but about 600,000. So, and in the context of China, there's about 110 million minorities. So if it was a, a country, it would be like the 12th largest country in the world or 13th largest country in the world. So there's a significant population here. Now, what's interesting is looking at educational attainment and looking to see whether or not it matches occupational outcomes. Um, there are many ways to do this. There's, there, you can do regressions. Um, so um, I, I don't show the regressions here, but if you are interested in the academics or people who are interested in, in this sort of work, um, I can send you the, the list of regressions and the papers that I wrote on those, um, what that means and the implications. So it looks at experience, it looks at credentials, it looks at a strength of education. So for instance, if you went to a, a top school versus an, uh, a school overseas, um, that actually might, might play a role and whether or not you might get a good um, um, position in the labor market. But what we do see, however, is that, and especially among recent arrivals, is that, and, and, and I think most people would articulate, that one of the most compelling universal expectations is future occupational achievements and financial success based on education, right? Based on, if you get a good education, um, you find people have the expectation that it, it, it leads to good labor market outcomes. Um, and so we find that this has re been reinforced in studies by the OECD. It's been reinforced by, by um, if you look at statistics, uh, looking at what the value of an education is, that um, by virtue of having more education, in theory, you should have higher occupational prospects and a higher wage. Um, and, and, and so what we can also articulate is that the reason why this is the case is that we believe in the idea of meritocracy, that 
Um, by virtue of having an education, based on my merit alone, I should be able, I should be able to have good outcomes in the labor market. Um, now, what I would suggest to you, and, and this is something that may not be, may, may be um, something that you might share as well, a sort of uh, a, a course that you may share, is the sense that uh, occupational outcomes is not only based on, on human capital alone. Um, and in fact, when we do look at causes, that's a lot of the arguments I'm going to make is that when in fact when you look at the labor market, most jobs and most high-paying positions actually have very little to do with your education. It has more to do with, well, we'll get into working culture, and we'll talk about social networks, and we'll talk about trust, uh, when the rules that, that, that play there. But at least, I mean, to, to, if we were to set up educational attainment, we would argue that, yes, um, educational attainment should lead to good labor market outcomes. Now, I'm not sure if you, people in the back can see this. Uh, uh, I mean, if, if you can, I'll just read out some of the key stats here. Um, sorry, I don't like using pointers, but here I go. Um, what we see here is that when we look at university education um, in, in Toronto, we find that the European totals is 19.2%, the non-European totals is 21.2%. Uh, the odds ratio, basically, um, and, and, and what's interesting about this, this sort of uh, data, this data came from the uh, census information, um, and it was actually, and it restricted it by people who are second generation and beyond. So we're not talking about recent arrivals here, essentially. So second generation and beyond ethnic minorities. What we find is that second generation ethnic minorities tend to be slightly more educated than the non-ethnic minority um, population. And, 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 and so that's at the undergraduate level and both the graduate level. Um, interestingly, in, in, in Beijing, it's a very similar sort of situation as well. Um, we found that the ethnic minorities average who had secondary school education and tertiary level education, um, they tend to, sorry, at the tertiary level education, you point out uh, in Beijing that minorities in Beijing had 21.5% um, had tertiary education, whereas the Hans, which is the dominant group, had 17.5%. Again, for our sake, all, all we're attempting to establish here is that the second generation and beyond ethnic minorities actually have slightly more education than the non-minority variable. Now, when we look at occupational outcomes, there's many ways to do this, and economists have always debated about this. I mean, what, I mean, should we, um, so for instance, when we look at the gender penalty, people argue we need to look at maternity effects, we need to look at years in, uh, in the labor market and so forth. Um, so as I said, if you're interested in this, um, please send me an email. I'll send you all the regressions if you're interested in, in, in looking at that. But I'm just going to summarize. So in the labor market, it's the best way to actually uh, look at ethnic minority groups' economic performance. You can look at income and ethnic participation by occupational sectors, which have been quite reliable to figure out whether or not a penalty exists. Um, you can look at concentrations in different occupational sectors. Um, and what, essentially what that means is uh, if you find that there are more higher upper management are actually of a particular group, that shows that there's concentration, right? Um, and so it would suggest differential access to the labor market. Now, in spite of having higher education, you find that, uh, again, this is the second generation and beyond, because I always get a question, what about, are you looking only at recent migrants? This is the second generation and beyond. What we find is, is that uh, among the European total, um, there are 2.3% are actually um, high-level managers, and that's defined by Statistics Canada, um, and I guess the ABS be very similar here as well with their definitions. Um, and, and the non-European total is 0.9%. We find that at every, at every managerial level, we find this, and at the professional class, we find that as well. 
essentially we would use sociological terms. We would say in high status, high paying positions, um, that minorities are suffering a penalty. Rather, and so, and then there are higher, there are more concentration in low status, low paying positions. And, and when we look at the mean salary, look at that difference there. It's, uh, what, $16,000 almost Canadian, which is the same Australian, um, these days, um, that there's a penalty there. And again, I can't stress enough, we're looking at the second generation and beyond, right? Now, what we find is a very similar case in Beijing as well. Now, despite the fact that minorities in Beijing and Toronto have a higher education, you find that they are concentrated, um, so when you look at this, take this section here, that's essentially a good proxy for high status, high paying positions. We find that Hans dominate every single category there. And, and, and conversely, we find that uh, ethnic minorities are general, generally dominant in, in low status, low paying positions. And when you look at income, you find that it won't be surprising, similar to Toronto, that minorities are, are suffering a penalty in the case of Beijing and even in China generally. Now, as I said, uh, this is a, it's a very simple way of looking at it. There's actually more co complicated ways of looking at this. And, and, and more, more sophisticated ways will be looking at years of experience, experience square, education, strength of education, where you uh, obtain an education. Was it a native education? Oh, you, did you obtain education in your country versus, say, obtaining it overseas? You can factor all that in there versus wages, bonuses, and so forth. And once you've done that and you look at the regression, it actually does suggest there's a penalty. Now, the size of the penalty might matter, but the, the point still remains that the penalty does is skewed towards minorities. In other words, minorities are suffering a greater penalty when factoring education and experience. Now, we can debate this. Uh, I mean, there's always, I mean, economists are always saying, well, your measurements are wrong, and luckily, hopefully, no one's going to ask me about measurements and so forth. But um, I mean, we can debate whether or not the penalty exists. Um, but what's interesting is trying to figure out why it exists. It can't simply be um, that it's discrimination, can it? And so when we look at the causes, I mean, the first thing, the first thing everyone says is discrimination. Um, so there's two ways to look at discrimination. There's exclusionary discrimination and there's statistical discrimination. So it's statistical discrimination or economic discrimination, depending on what sort of disciplinary focus you are. So essentially, when you look at the stats, one group is, is, is doing better off than the other group. Whereas exclusionary discrimination is saying that, um, say, I don't know, I, uh, so I'm Trinidadian, and say that my name, by virtue of being Trinidadian, it has a cue of Trinidadian it, and an employer realized that they don't like Trinidadians, um, so they're not going to hire Trinidadians, that's exclusionary discrimination, essentially, right? So, what we do tend, what economists tend to believe is that, look, discrimination on the basis of descriptive factors is actually also based on physical appearance or linguistical sort of uh, um, uh, positioning, you find it is actually a source of economic inefficiency. So, the, you know, the neoclassical economists will say this is inefficient. If you have a worker who's better, who's better productive, why would you actually hire someone who's less productive? So, what, what, what economists have argued then is that there's a taste for discrimination. So, the employer actually factors in when they are hiring that, hey, I would, I would, I'm willing to accept a lesser productivity to hire someone who I trust more. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to test that sort of theory soon. But what we find is that, and what's interesting, when we, when we, one thing that we seem not to realize, or at least we do realize, but it's not as in the forefront as possible, is that when it comes to the employment of labor, it actually involves a lot of personal relations, direct personal relations, and between the employer and the employee which has a potential for adding a discriminatory element. 
Now, the psychologist would always tell us that, look, we always we discriminate. As human beings, we discriminate. Um, I might have a preference for blue versus red. Uh, I might like, I, I don't like a red pen. I've always been socialized to believe red pens are bad to write in. And so that's a discriminatory sort of element there. It doesn't mean it's a negative thing. It just means it's part of human nature, right? Now, when we, when we look at discrimination, so you can actually what's interesting about the Canadian census is that we, we're a bit obsessed about ethnicity. And so in the census, it actually have uh, uh, visibility indexes. Um, so you can actually create a visibility index. So there's a question that asks, uh, are you a visible ethnic minority? It's as simple as that. And so what I did um, for this table is I said, okay, well, Trinidadians, 99.9% .9 of Trinidadians said they're visible minorities. So it'll be clumped up into this visibility index to try and figure out whether or not visibility plays a role in your labor market outcomes, right? And what we found here is that um, the more visible you are, the more education you tend to have. I don't know what the significance of that is. I'm just saying that's, that's one of the things that, that, that occurred. We also found that uh, you're less inclined to be a manager, you're less inclined to be a middle-level manager, and you're less inclined to be a professional, um, in a professional class. And your income is slightly lower than, 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 uh, than the, well, slightly lower than the non-European total in aggregate, and it's also significantly lower than the mean salary for the European total. But it's still inconclusive evidence. I mean, look, it, it says the more visible you are, there's a greater chance of potentially having a discriminatory element. But it's inconclusive. So the next thing, again, as I said, we're a bit obsessed in Canada. Uh, there's a question on the census that asks, you know, is English your first language? Or, or um, can you speak second languages or third languages? And you actually write down in a box what your second and third, fourth, and fifth languages are. Um, and so what I did there is trying to create a linguistical index. So, for instance, among the Taiwanese population, I think like 97, 98% of Taiwanese in Canada reported that English is not their first language. So that's a way you can actually start of proxying uh, different groups and what their linguistic group skills are, essentially. And what we find is, is that um, those who actually have greater native English speaking actually perform better in, have, uh, perform better in, 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 in managerial positions and professional class positions. And those who have less, who, who English is not their first language, actually, well, it's inconclusive. You find that, the, that, that you can't really suggest that um, linguistical skills actually is a proxy of figuring out what your education is. So the bottom line here is looking at physical appearance, looking at linguistical appearance, um, it's inconclusive evidence to suggest that uh, the labor market, uh, there's a penalty in the labor market for these groups. So the next thing one would do is figure, all right, why don't we combine this? Let's see if, you're, if you have a, if you're in the top echelons of, of visibility and you're not, and in top echelons of, of, as a group that has uh, English as a second language. And see, quote, these at-risk groups. Whether or not these at-risk groups essentially are suffering a penalty. So we do find that the at-risk groups here actually tend to have a higher education. And significant, this is actually quite significant. It's almost 6% more have a higher university undergraduate education and about three, well, two and a half, two, two and a, 2.8% more, 2.9% more um, graduate school. And you find that they suffer a greater penalty in a managerial and professional class. Now, for some of you and some of us here, it's like, okay, why is that surprising? You know, you're just telling me something I already know. So what was interesting about this is that discrimination played a role. But what, what sort of role? This is sort of a key question. And, and so at that point, I was not satisfied. I'm like, it can't simply be discrimination. 
So the next sort of thing to test is social network. Do these groups have good social networks? And what's interesting about it is that when we look at the network concepts or network understandings of labor market allocation, it shows that social segregation can actually create labor market segregation through network referrals. So, for instance, I mean, and this is, this is universal almost, uh, except for some exceptions for certain groups. You find that most groups would actually, upon arrival, would, would concentrate where they have like-minded individuals within the group, right? So, for instance, if Trinidadians somehow came to Australia, I've never actually met another Trinidadian, but let's just say we came to Australia, most likely we would cluster together if we came as a big group. If we came as a very small group, most likely we'd be dispersed. But if we clustered together as a big group, you find that, and we were so happened to be very good at, uh, I don't know, um, producing clocks, um, you find that the offspring has a greater chance of producing clocks. You find that those who are coming in to that neighborhood is going to have a greater chance of producing clocks. And, that illness, and the reason why that occurs is not because they have an affinity for producing clocks. It's because when you look at how jobs are acquired, two-thirds of all jobs are actually acquired through network referral. So two-thirds of all jobs. And, this is, and so you find in, in China, in Canada, in the UK, um, in the US, in Australia, we find that it ranges from 60 to 70%. So it's about two-thirds of all jobs are found through network referrals. What that tells us automatically is that when, 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 when we believe that we have high education, and for my, for my students in this room, that does not mean you should not have an education, but it does suggest that um, education alone is not the way, a path to getting an occupation, a high occupational outcome. What it does suggest is that even though we see that minorities are higher educated, it does not automatically mean that they're going to get a good position, because they're competing for jobs, essentially, that's only one-third of the labor market. And in fact, that's even, that's, that's a general sense. In a, more, in a more specific sense, when you look at professional jobs and the higher managerial jobs, in order to actually achieve those positions, it actually requires greater network capital. And so what was interesting, and, and, I, and I don't talk about this too much um, in, in this book, but I'm writing a new book on this, is looking at why is it that ethnic minority groups, and particularly recent immigrants into Australia and into Canada, have a greater have a they have a belief that we need to have more education. By having more education, I'm able to actually you know integrate better, which is true. But I'm actually able to actually have a higher chances of getting a job. And if I don't get a job, I need to get more education. And so, I mean, what that, that the implications for that can be profound. From a policy perspective, we'll talk more about that. Now, um, in, so qualitative interviews in Toronto and Beijing suggested one social network, whether it's strong ties or weak ties, play a major role in the job search and hiring process. What that's just suggesting is this. So strong ties are your family context. Weak ties are your acquaintances. Now, what you find is that uh, through acquaintances, you're actually able to get a better uh, understanding, a better chances of getting a job through network referral. That's because if you have an acquaintance, they most likely have different information than what you have. Whereas if you have a family member, most likely you, 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 you roll in the same circles and you're going to get the same sort of job information. And so what you find as a consequence then is that when you actually do ask minorities in Toronto and Beijing but what type of ties that they have, they tend to have more strong ties rather than weak ties. So again, they're being penalized because they're actually replicating a very small sort of job information versus uh, other groups who actually have better weak ties. 
Um, so what we actually see here is that when we look at social networks, that the discrimination no longer has any cost to the discriminator, but rather reaps social rewards. In other words, um, when minority workers have low social network capital, we find that the odds of a minority member obtaining a job that's high wage in the professional and managerial class decrease tremendously. So social networks explains this as well. But it's more than that. It's working culture as well. So another task I was interested in is trying to figure out do, we're talking about, again, looking through the second generation and beyond. Can they fit in within the working culture? Now, when you think about it, if you were to think about it in a very pragmatic manner, you would say there should be no reason. They've been socialized in Canada. They've been socialized in Australia. They've been socialized in Beijing for most of their, for all of their lives. That's why they're second generation, right? So they should be able to fit in within the working culture. Now, I'll give you an anecdotal story, but it does illustrate my point here. I remember meeting a, a, a Tibetan lady who was a third-generation Beijinger. She's never lived in Tibet. She doesn't know anything about Tibet, does not speak the language. She went to one of China's top universities. So she went to Beijing University. She got a PhD there. Um, and so she went into the job market with, with eyes wide open, thinking, I have one of the best degrees. I, I, can, I have well-skilled. I've worked hard. Um, I should have some good opportunities. And what she found was that employees kept on asking her more about her Tibetanness. Like, what is it like living in Tibet? She's like, well, I've lived in Beijing all my life. I don't know anything about Tibet. Well, what about your parents? They've lived in Beijing all their lives. They don't know anything about Tibet. But they kept on asking about ethnic fashions and, and Tibetan foods and so forth. But what it does suggest is that what the story illustrates, that even in a context such as China, or, or um, and if we, expose, if we ex extrapolate into the Australian or Canadian context, if you have a good... So one thing you can test is seeing whether or not, say there's a lot of Trinidadians again coming to Australia. And say I'm a second or third generation Australian. You find that depending on the numbers, and there's actually a skew you can figure out, depending on the numbers, um, that employees are going to actually recognize that Trinidadian as being a recent migrant. And so their trust in them is less. And I'll, again, I'll, I've mentioned trust a couple of times, and I promise you we'll, we'll talk about trust. But what it suggests is, is that um, employers perceive, anyways, that, they are not, um, that those individuals are not going to fit in within the working culture. So what is the working culture? It's something perhaps I should mention very briefly. The working culture is patterns of informal social behavior, it's communication, it's decision-making, it's interpersonal relationships. Essentially, um, you know, when you... I spent some time just um, looking at, em at employees, sorry, employers trying to hire employees. And some of the things that they were saying, and, and in China they're a bit more crude than, say, in Canada where we're a bit more desensitized to what it is we say, but it's still, in effect, the same thing, was that if I have candidates who are very similar on paper, I'm going to go for the candidate who I believe I can be a good friend with, the potential friends principle. And it's, in other words, I trust this, this individual more. Um, and so what we found was is that um, referrals and informal contacts was a way for, for, for employers to vouch for another individual. So, for instance, if, um, if I vouch for one person here and that employer knows who I am, they're like, well, I trust this person more. And so I'm more inclined to hire them. And so that's why network capital plays a role here in the working culture. So what we found is that, well, what I found was is that um, Informal contacts and referrals played a major role. But informal contacts, if you hire on the basis of, of network capital, it creates homogeneity at the organizational level. 
And, and this actually strengthens the power of the dominant social group to steer and shape the working culture. Now, as a footnote, I'm just going to suggest that one of the things that, 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 that what was quite prevalent in, in the studies was that supportive relationships with a supervisor was the best predictor of figuring out whether or not an ethnic minority got promoted or not. And the direct supportive relationships as well. And so you found that if, if minorities felt a sense of belonging, they actually have a greater chance, they statistically have a better chance of getting promoted. And, and again, that, and the supportive relationships with your, with your supervisor played a role in fostering that sense of belonging. Now, as I, as I call it, social trust. Trust. Why are we talking about trust? There's many, I mean, people talk about trust in many different disciplines and many different contexts. But with the trust we're talking about here is looking at trust among um, strangers rather than trust among family members or group levels. Social trust applies to the job matching process since the prospective employers and employees um, must have a minimum level of trust in order for each other's, in, in each other's accountability, so to speak, before they can mutually engage in working together. But plainly, you need to at least have a minimum level of trust to ensure that you're going to hire that person and this person is going to be able to work well. And, and what you find is, what uh, fancy way of looking at that is looking at social distances between groups. So say the Trinidadians are living in the suburbs and say, I don't know, um, the Chinese are living in, 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 in the CBD. And so there's, because of social distance, i.e. their contact is very limited, you find that they trust each other less, in fact. And you won't be surprised in that sort of scenario that Chinese would not hire the Trinidadians and vice versa. It's amazing how that works. Um, uh, and so you can actually, and so trust plays such an important role. And when you find that jobs are found through the open market, trust doesn't trust actually. Um, so when, when jobs are found through the open market through direct application, in other words, you send a CV uh, to an organization without, without them knowing who you are, you find that the odds of you obtaining that position is very, very low. And so we find that ethnic minorities are actually in a greater, in a greater, as a greater population actually are in that position to send CVs through the open market. So trust is not being established as much. Now, another sort of cyclical sort of reasons here behind the decline of social trust between ethnic minorities and, and the dominant group is these income disparities. So say there's a, I don't know, say there's a $20,000 disparity between um, visible ethnic minorities as the dominant group. That means that their, their sort of social circles be much different. So you, in order to establish trust, it needs to be meaningful interaction. And so it's, 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 it's sort of a cyclical sort of issue that's occurring here. Okay. So we've looked at potentially establishing that a penalty exists. We've sort of looked at, well, we've looked at the potential explanations behind why the penalty exists. Now, what are those sort of, how do we alleviate this penalty? What sort of policy issues, um, policy options we can have? Um, you know, it's, I'm not sure if you're going to like what I have to say. <laughs> uh, we tend to approach this from a social justice perspective. And what I mean by that is this. We tend to say that we need to have different groups represented in, in, in different in private sector and the public sector because it just makes you want to have a, a, a a labor market that reflects, you know, the population. So the, the way it's framed is that it's social justice. It's a more the moral implication. That means a moral out of moral right or moral correctness that we ought to have this. And whether or not we agree or not with that is a different story. What I would suggest is we let's sidestep that for a second. I would say that it requires if, if we, we talk about it within economic justice, um, it's a much more powerful sort of case. 
What I mean by that is this. Let's make a business case for this. Chinese and Canadian education highly subsidized. Public education, and it's really the same case. 6.2% of GDP um, is spent on education. It can be higher depending on what nation you're at. But the point still remains that we're spending, I mean, taxpayers and, and, and public are spending a whole lot of money on education. We should get returns on that education. And so we need to minimize the, the underutilization of human capital. Now, Canada has attempted to do that in, in the federal um, government by, by instilling federal employment equity legislation, which in theory should reduce the ethnic penalty. Basically, it suggests uh, that we, we should try and have a population in, in, in the government that reflects, you know, the, the standard population. So there's, in theory, that might mean for some, in the most extreme case, that 40% of Toronto's minorities, you might want to have 40% who are in the government. I mean, whether or not we agree with that is another story. But at least you can understand what the, what the employment equity sort of legislation is trying to suggest. Um, what you find is that the mon while both Beijing and both, or both Canada and China have this, you find that the monitoring mechanisms for this is lax. And if a, if a department, um, I know some of you are from government departments, um, if, 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 if the department does not have, you know, a good um, different representations, whether it's male or female, whether or not it's minorities or non-minorities, or whatever sort of social group you want to look at, there's very little penalties within any mechanisms to suggest that they're going to be penalized for having this. So there's no incentive, so to speak, for them to actually do anything about this. And that's what we're having the problem in Canada. Six percent of, of, of um, let me see if I have the stats here. I think it's six percent um, in Canada. Sorry, no. In 2002, public service employees surveyed. Only 37% reported they met legislative standards of employment equity. And only 5% reported they exceeded those standards. When you look at the upper management of, uh, in, in federal governments, you find that 6%, that's where I think that came from, 6% uh, of employees are actually visible minorities. So you can see how there's some issues at hand here. Now, what was interesting, and might be interesting in the Australian context, in China, although there's preferential treatment in education, people, minorities, in fact, when you poll them, do not want to have preferential treatment in the labor market. And the reasons why they suggest that they don't want that is because in Chinese, the translation is it's a handout. They do not want a handout. They, they realize we need to have a good education, and if we have a good education, we work hard enough, we're going to be able to get a good job. And so that's, that's where you find that, um, that, that employment equity sort of policies actually fail miserably in China. Another thing that, 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 that I've suggested, and in, in, in running out of time, just wrap up very quickly, um, is that when we, when we promote ethnic minorities um, groups, experiences through, through uh, festivals and so forth, it's a commodified image of what a minority is. So, I mean... Again, I take one to that because um, that's my background. That's the only reason why. Um, I don't want to offend anyone. Um, but Trinidadians, I mean, we have caravanas. We're portrayed uh, as being happy-go-lucky people, and, and we're, we're all, you know, having great times in, in, in carnival and so forth. And, and, that's, and that's a great image, I suppose, because I think we are happy people for the most part. Um, but if you think that's the only image, if your only contact with that group is with, through that imagery, then you find that that could be problematic because when you get to the labor market, the employer might, might think, oh, you'll be a great friend, but I can't hire you because I don't think you'll be that productive. You might be a bit too relaxed, too chilled. 
And so, I mean, it's just, it's, it's just, I mean, we're making a lot humor of it, but well, what, what it does suggest is when we are creating government programs or funding celebratory festivals, it might be worthwhile to show the accomplishments of different groups. So there's a couple of Nobel Prize winners from Trinidad. No one knows that. <laughs> no one knows that. Um, and so it shows that we are capable. I mean, it's very interesting how, how this, the way you, you, you portray a group affects your labor market outcomes. Something as simple as that. And so, yes, um, and, and in, in China, what you find, so during the Olympics, um, in the opening ceremonies, one of the interesting things was that you had all 56 groups on this slide. There's official minority groups. Um, and all 56 minority groups, were not actually, those were not actually minorities. They were actually all Hans. But they all, all, so the Hans were wearing suits, whereas minorities were wearing their traditional costumes. And what that illustrates right there, and, and again, please make your own reference here to Australia. I'm not going to say it. But um, what it suggests is, is that it, 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 while you are celebrating the, uh, the, 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 the history and the experiences of that group, if that's your only contact with that group, it becomes problematic because you think that's the group in itself. And employers, again, being risk adverse, think, oh, I'm not going to hire that person. I love to be friends, and I'm going to be curious to know more about it, but that's it. That's, I don't think that person's productive. So imageries matter a lot, and, and, and particularly government programs that, 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 that are funding celebratory festivals should be quite careful in doing that. Um, I talk about, uh, you know, on the last point I'll make um, is, is this. I've been suggesting we need to make an economic case rather than a social justice case. And people have argued, I mean, when I have made this case in Canada, they said, well, government shouldn't interfere because government should embrace the idea that the market is the final arbitrator of social justice. The market in itself can determine the fair distribution and compensation for labor. It's not our role as government or as public to actually interfere in that. And so, in fact, the fear that a lot of, particularly with the governments we have in Canada now, um, is that if, if the government does intervene, it distorts market conditions. But when we look at the roles of social, of social networks or social trust in the job allocation process, it does demonstrate the inadequacy of leaving labor market equity to market forces. It, and these indicate potential market failures have little to do with statistical discrimination as traditionally understood. And I'll put it differently, um, there's already interference. The market forces are being distorted as we, as we speak, even if government is uninterfering. So it, it is a, it's imperative from an economic standpoint to get returns on your investments. If you're investing six point, I mean, we're talking billions of dollars in education. It's imperative that you try to regain that, that sort of uh, investment by ensuring that in the labor market groups, whether or not it's minorities, I can make the same case for women, I can make the same case for many other sort of social groups, actually get returns on their education. Okay, so that's my little spiel there, and it's just based on that book, and there's another book, and yeah, and so. Question, please. Don't be shy. Yeah. Right. 
Um, let me briefly answer that. Um, again, I have to be very careful what I say. Um, I'm not an expert on the issue in context, but I would say in other contexts, the experience is that jobs, when governments do try to reskill different groups uh, and they try to find positions, employment positions for them, the availability of those jobs can be low-status, low-paying jobs. And so what happens is, is that it, re it just creates a cycle that they're actually not getting a higher wage for even more education. So that is problematic there. How can we govern that? Um, you know, if I put my sociological hat, I'm thinking, we really, it's difficult to govern human nature. And it would be, be very difficult for us to say we, we should govern human nature, i.e., if I trust another individual, you cannot force someone to trust another. It requires contact, it requires meaningful contact, it might actually take generations. So what would that mean, consequentially, for a policymaker, is that you would attempt to, um, at least for the, for the recent migrants who came in, ensure that, you know, they have a very easy transition, hope that their offspring do much better. But moreover, what you find, and what you do find with the, with the migrants who, do recent, who are recent arrivals and they're not able to succeed in the primary labor market is that they go into the secondary labor market. Well, that, that's simply saying that they go into uh, small and medium enterprises, small businesses, and you find that they actually earn higher uh, wages than they can in the primary labor market. So some groups who have, a, let's say, an affinity to, to small and medium enterprises actually have higher wages when you look at the facts. But that's just masking that they are suffering a penalty in the labor market. Yes. I'm actually, so I'm actually, I've just started doing that. I just got the ABS stats uh, a few weeks ago. I was shocked that Australia is actually doing better than Canada. <laughs> I, I don't know why I was shocked. Because again, I actually know why. Uh, um, because the idea is that look, we we've been obsessed with multiculturalism for the last thirty years. It's constitutionally protected. We 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 we, we, we we've always been shown by the UN and, and different agencies as the role model. But what's interesting is is that you find that um, your your second generation is actually doing significantly better than your first than than, than our second generation. And that's shocking. Um, and I'm trying, I mean, as I said, it's very preliminary. It's all stats I'm looking at right now. I haven't actually interviewed anyone or spoken to anyone yet. So if you have any advice thereafter, please, please uh, tell me. I'd be lovely, it'd be lovely to know. Right. Right. But there's, I mean, as a foreigner, there's a lack of sensitivity in my mind of what, of ethnic relations here but yet you're doing better. <laughs> so that's, that's a paradox in my mind. Yeah. Right. Um, so what's interesting is, is that um, there's two ways to go about this. Uh, I'll go back to China for a second. Well, you find that there's preferential education for minorities in China. But employers are actually factoring that in. They're thinking, well, sure, you can go to Beijing University, but you probably got in because of preferential treatment. And so your, your quality of education is lower than another person who went to Beijing University, even though we're talking about most, it's incredible to see the standards that, that actually get into that university. So from that perspective, what that suggests is that credentialism, and where you get the credentials matter a lot. Now, how does one measure that? Um, 
the census, it's difficult to get to the census, if that's what you're hoping to get at. You would actually have to do a survey. So we, I did actually do a survey, and it's looking at foreign credentials and, and how, what employers know about foreign credentials. Well, you find that employers know very little about it. So, in fact, in Toronto, we have one of the most educated taxi drivers in the world. We all have masters and PhDs. And the reason for that is because you find that um, employers know very little about, you know, both nations and, and, and their sort of credentialism. But professional associations also play a role. So doctors, engineers, lawyers, um, they actually need to be retrained completely if they come into Toronto. And so that plays a role in distorting conditions. Now, what you do find, however, is that if you do get overseas education in, in what employers perceive as a good institution, so the limited knowledge that they know, that you find that they don't suffer a penalty as much. But again, it's up to the employer who is risk adverse. They are going to go for the safest option when it comes to the labor market choices that they make. Yeah. And, and, and what's interesting with the Swiss model, because they actually have, uh, they have apprenticeships and interns, or they're very, there's a strong training program. And you find that um, the groups who actually go into Switzerland, even though they have a million you know, permanent residents and not citizens, that's a different story. But you do find that they actually perform better because you find that um, they're actually getting on-the-job training. But it's not necessarily the training they're getting on the job. It's the network contacts that they make. And so, again, for my students, Please cover your ears for a second. Um, that does not mean, it means that in schools you're not actually getting the contacts or you're not being socialized to know that you should be getting contacts. What's interesting is that, um, is that there's this belief that, again, that particularly among students and ethnic minority students, is that education alone is all I need. I can make it on my own. And, 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 and what we find is if you understand how the labor market operates, if you, it's difficult to make it on your own. And in fact, two-thirds of jobs, as I said, um, are not found through making it on your own. at the entry point into getting the job. So Kenneth Arrow actually brought in sociological work, essentially, to understand the discrimination in the labor market. And what was interesting about that is that the neoclassical economists, as you, as you articulated, would suggest that we, on your, on, your, on your raw skills alone, you should be able to do very well. You know, you get, you get the person, basically, who has uh, the best, best uh, ability to actually have productivity. Now, if you have a company in which has uh, better, can actually identify that, that works well at the entry level. But when you actually look at a promotion level, promotion has very little to do with skewing you know, who's the best productive worker for most companies in the private sector. It depends on the industry and so forth, but just generally speaking, the wide sweeping generalization, you find that um, the promotion levels have more to do with can I relate to you, can I trust you, and so forth. And as a consequence, you find it, wages become skewed 
for those who are trusted more versus those who are not trusted more. That can be understood within ethnic terms or gender terms. And so, yes, you're right. Um, at the entry level, you might find there's a difference. That, that companies who are actually um, uh, segmenting based on you know, who has the best human capital um, might perform better at, at the lower level. A good anecdotal evidence of this is looking at Canadian banks. At the low level, we, uh, we tend to have very good uh, distribution of ethnic groups. But at the upper echelon, and, and at the lower levels, again, they're, 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 they're actually uh, segmenting based on human capital. But at the upper echelon, again, which has very, you can't really put out a formula. You can't, you can't do it in an objective manner uh, when it comes to performance evaluations, because there's a lot of studies that illustrate that, again, has a lot to do with trust. Um, you find that uh, um, because trust plays that role, that those groups are going to be at a disadvantage. Yeah. Right. Why do I do that? Um, because there's this idea that oh, they're recent arrivals. Give them a generation or two, they'll be okay. I mean, that's just, just a, a crude way of putting it. Um, and so when you look at second generation and beyond, it shows that, hey, what sort of integration is occurring here? Um, and in fact, I've actually skewed even further. You can look at 1.25, 1.5 generation, 1.75 generation. That's basically the year of migration. If you were under six years old, you'd be like, you'd be 1.25 generation. You could figure it out thereafter. And so the longer you stayed in the country, in theory, you would figure intuitively you should have better chances of, of developing social trust and so forth and being able to fit within the working culture. So that's why the second generation beyond was used um, to say, well, you know, we're, we're because people are going to say it's just the first generation, it's just a recent migrant issue. That's simply that. Which, and so what's surprising about that is it's actually we still suffer a penalty. I think we're almost running out of time. Yes. So uh, one thing that really you should know is uh, well, obviously uh, wonderful academic researcher, um, but uh, in, his, in his history too, he's also been someone who's came through his knowledge to make an impact in the policy world, and I think it was very encouraging. We didn't, we didn't have to ask Reese to come to the program. He wanted to come to the So uh, I'm sure you'll hear a lot more of uh, Reese around his work, and, um, and I'm sure he's you know, encouraged you to make contact with him if you want to follow things up. So thank you very much. Thank you, Paul.